Welcome to Central Assembly's podcast. Today's message is from a guest speaker. We pray this message speaks to you. So sitting next to Pastor Brian is Pastor Deb. She's the creative arts director, has been with Pastor Brian for how many years? 20. Over 25. Over 25 years, just partnering in ministry, doing a great work. So why don't you go ahead and just welcome both of them this evening. Amen. You know, we're uh, going to get started tonight, and before I really, you know, start with what we're going to talk about, um, I just want to give an affirmation to the word that Pastor Kurt shared. Sometimes when the gifts of the Holy Spirit operate among us, we're Pentecostals, right? We believe the gifts are for today. There's manifestational gifts, there's motivational gifts, there's ministry gifts. I believe the word he gave tonight was a word of wisdom. I believe it was prophetic. And I, I, I said this morning that if we don't tie our story to God's story, there's not much of our story left. An unfinished business, and I want you to really think about that. In fact, maybe just close your eyes right now. Let's all do that. He's prayed over us already, but I just want you to think about what is unfinished? What is unforgiven? What is unreconciled? What is unreasonable? And I want you to consider that because as you consider your unfinished business, and you can look this way, the Bible says in the Gospels in John 19.30, here's what it says, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was born of a virgin, he was perfect, he was sinless, he never did one evil thing to anyone. He was hung on a cross through his hands and feet. Today we wear crosses in our ears and our necks. It would be like, it would literally be like hanging, like someone coming to you and saying, I see your electric chair earrings are beautiful. It was a place of execution. He hung between those two thieves. And I guarantee you, they had done something miserable. To be crucified, they had to do something horrible against Rome. And that man that was hanging one to his right and one to his left, one was cursing him and said, if you are the Son of God, get us off of here. And the other man was kind of broken. He didn't know any, you know, Christian terms, no religiosity. He didn't know theology. He didn't know sanctification, justification, atonement. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. All he said was, remember me. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. For that man, I don't know what he did his whole life, but that moment, it was finished. Jesus, when they brought the hyssop up to his mouth because he was thirsty, John 19.30 says that he spoke, it is finished. Whatever we need to finish in our lives, as we talk about forgiveness tonight, we need to realize that Jesus paid the price. So when we refuse to forgive When we refuse to honor God, when we refuse to just open our heart, that's our choice. And so I just want you to know that that word that he spoke tonight, I believe it can be powerfully prophetic. It's a word of wisdom. You know, knowledge is knowing what to do. Wisdom is being able to apply it. And uh, I'll say this as I start. um, I was going to read another verse until God brought that word to us. But here's the verse that I was going to read, Psalm 37. Psalm 37, verse 23 and 24, here's, where it's, here's what it says. The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will never fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. The Lord directs the steps of the godly. I, I have never thought so much in my life about taking steps. I've never thought about a heel strike or a, you know, lifting of my hip. I've never thought about my knee having to bend. It's just, it's fascinating when I first, you know, I got to one point where I was in the bed and thought I would never get out of it. I thought I was going, and what they told me was I was going to go from bed to casket. So thank God for the bed when you're not in the casket. Can you say amen? Thank God for the wheelchair when you're not in the bed. Thank God for the forearm crutches that get you out of the wheelchair. Thank God for the cane, where it's just my cane, 
They told me, you know, just a few weeks ago, you know, there's more metal inside my body than there is outside. But I go in TSA, I get on an airplane, and almost every time what I get is, man, you got a lot of hardware. I got titanium on the outside and titanium on both my hips. Both my hips were crushed. My pelvis was crushed. So I think about every step I take. And the Bible says this, that God directs the steps of the godly. That he, is, that he delights in every detail of our life. So what we're going to talk about tonight is it's a journey, all right? Uh, you talk about the story, you know, I don't know what chapter I'm in. For a lot of years, I thought, hey, here's my story. 1980, ah, 80, 1984, I lost my hair, all right? And you know why. Some of you part your hair like me. Um, God only made a few perfect heads, and on the rest, he put hair. So we feel sorry for you, all right? Like Pastor Kurt, there's something wrong with his head. That's why he's got hair. Just saying. And then in 1985, I lost my left eye. As you heard this morning, 2015, I lost my left leg. And I lost the most sacred thing off my left finger. It was my wedding ring. So a lot on my left, left eye, left leg, left wedding ring. I'll just tell you this, though. When I don't got much more on the left to lose. But I can tell you tonight, by the grace of God, I'm all right. I'm all right. And sometimes, you know, I think we get all hung up. Some of you said that to me this morning that, man, we believe in the miraculous. God can do miracles. I told, I've seen it. I believe in many ways I am one. So I believe in the miraculous, but there's also a journey. And so tonight, we're just going to share with you our journey. And I want you to think about your journey. I want you to think about the unfinished business in your life. But I want us to remember that Jesus has finished it. It's finished. We're going to celebrate Easter in a few weeks. And I want you to know this, on the baseball terms, I want you to know that when you, think of, when you think of Holy Week and you think of Palm Sunday and the crucifixion, Good Friday and Easter, it's not like Jesus split a doubleheader with the devil. The cross isn't a defeat. Satan wanted to keep Jesus off the cross because when he was on that cross, he said, it is finished. The veil of the temple was rent, rent. earthquakes happened around Israel, and the dead were raised to life. The cross is not a defeat. It's a part of our journey. And so we're going to share our journey with you. It's so good to have Deb and Todd. They have been longtime friends and uh, part of the ministry, fellow laborers in the kingdom. So she's going to be a part of it because she's going to share some of her story. It's not, you know, for half of my story of these, you know, last couple of years, I was in a coma, all right? And they understand part of the story. So Deb, thanks for being here as well. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure to be here, and I think it would just be important, you know, you, if you were here this morning, you saw the video, and that's, the video is very impacting, um, but how many of you guys know there's a lot more behind a story than just the video that you see? And so tonight, we just wanted to ask, we wanted to ask some of the tough questions, actually, some of the questions, I'm talking back here, um, that, we, that our church asked, some of the tough questions that your family was asking, some of the tough questions we as a staff were asking following the accident. But before we do that, can we just go back to June 7th? Um, I know you, your church tomorrow night, we're excited, is going to be hosting a first responders banquet. And that's something that our church has had a heart for for many years. And it was actually the morning of June 7th, 2015, we were doing our first responders day. And you referenced that this morning, that we had lots of first responders at our church. I remember distinctly you standing in front of the congregation that day and saying these words. I remember it like it was yesterday. You said, every, you said it this morning, every time you hear a siren, I want you to stop and pray because you never know who might be in that accident. And you said those words in the morning. We, we, you sent me a text after the service just talking about how you know, it was a great day. And then you went out on your motorcycle. So just tell me what you remember from that day. Yeah, so uh, got home, and my wife loved to ride motorcycle as much as I did. It wasn't like I had to coerce her and say, come on, please ride with me. I know there's many times where a wife will not let her husband ride. My wife loved to ride motorcycles. In fact, she told my mom, because my mom sometimes got concerned, and she'd say, Brian, you're going to ride that motorcycle? I said, Mom, it's what we love. And my wife told my mom, she said, Mom, if I ever die on that motorcycle, you're going to know one thing. I died happy. 
And so we hopped on that motorcycle, as I said, we went to Lancaster, we had good talks, we talked about our grandson coming, because we knew we were having a little boy. I can't have a girl, my gene pool doesn't allow for it. My grandmother had seven straight boys, and then two girls, and Lynn said, do you want to try for one more? I said, no, I've only got faith for three. We'll adopt, we can adopt. <laughs> but uh, we were talking about our grandson, and we made our way home, and um, as I shared, we were about a mile from the house, and this young man, Sean Eirich, who was addicted to alcohol and prescription drugs for over a decade, who came from a troubled past. His dad committed suicide. He was a broken person, broken family, came up over that curve, hit us head on. I said this morning, my wife was taken instantly. I was pinned, you saw the video, I was pinned between my motorcycle and the SUV. My body was being crushed. My right leg, my right leg, which is my good leg, how many ride motorcycle in this place? I saw some bikes sitting out there, all right? You know how hot that muffler is after you ride for two hours? It's so hot that if you even touch it, it I mean, it'll, it burns like crazy. This leg laid on that muffler for about an hour and a half. It went through several layers of skin. I have a huge scar in the back of my thigh, down to my calf. You need to be in prayer tomorrow night for this first responders banquet. I believe God's gonna move. I believe this county is going to recognize that God has his hand on this church. Some of those folks crawled under that SUV before it was even stable. Mm -hmm. They risked their own life. They had told Deb, they, they, they Facebooked into our church. The yeah. one gal was an atheist. She said, I'm not a churchgoer. I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. She said, I've never seen anything like that. She said, I was just reaching back, not even asking for anything. They were handing me the right thing. She crawled under that SUV when it was still unstable. Mm -hmm. The first man that came, the first responder that came to the scene was a faith responder. There was a guy in the city of Reading from Pittsburgh. He was out in this area. He was in visiting his mother who goes to GT. They were just relaxing. He went out for sandwiches. They were going out to get Italians and cheesesteaks. He's driving across that back road and he sees the accident. His wife later told me, his name was Joe Flock, his wife later told me that when his, their kids would get a nosebleed, that he would like freak out, almost faint. She said the fact that he walked out there, it looked like a war zone. She said there was blood everywhere. He walked out there, he looked at me and thought I was dead. He went right to my wife and started to pray for her. And when he prayed for her, he realized she wasn't alive. He thought they were both dead. He looked back at me, and just as he looked, I was raising my arm up underneath the bike. And so he came over and he prayed for me. So the first responder to me on June 7th was a faith responder who prayed for me. And I'll just close by saying this, that they resuscitated me twice. Twice I went out. I didn't have a near-death experience. I've talked with people in ministry who have. Seen their soul floating above their body. They didn't finish the journey. I never had an experience like that, but twice they said I'd wake up and I'd go after Lynn to try. I would just be, it took every EMT to, you know, to hold me back. And um, they resuscitated me twice. Then they finally put me out once and for all. And they got me on the helicopter. My spleen was removed. My, my kidneys were punctured. My liver was lacerated. I had huge, you know, abdominal issues going on major concussions, just I was a pure mess. In fact, all the blood loss that I had, you think would have come from this leg. I almost bled to death. But when the truck hit us, it turned my leg and it took the artery and litched it together. No blood came from this leg. All the blood loss came from my good leg from the burn. And so there's no doubt that God had his hand on me, but that was, uh, and like I said, I have no memory of it. I. I don't, I never saw the truck, never saw the SUV, just woke up in the hospital almost 51 days later. Yeah, and I, I remember that night. Um, I was at home, just, it was a Sunday night. We were, I was doing some cleaning up outside, and I remember when I got a phone call um, from someone on her staff who was a little panicked and said, did you hear that Brian and Lynn were in an accident? And I, I was like, no. And then all of a sudden, staff people, there was another staff person who ended up showing up at my front door. And I thought, okay, something is not right. And then I proceeded to get a little bit more information. And I can tell you, um, in that moment, like we talked about this morning, you have like a vase like this, and then you have a vase that shattered. I can tell you in that moment, I felt shattered. In fact, I felt sick to my stomach. 
Like I've never, I don't know if you've ever gotten news where you actually physically feel sick. Um, because they didn't know for sure what ha had happened to Lynn. At that point, they were saying that they couldn't find Lynn and that you had been medevaced. That was the first news that we got. And so I remember distinctively with the two staff people just kind of kneeling in my, my living room and praying and just saying, you know, just being in utter disbelief and saying, God, like, I don't know what to do. I'm just, I'm just going to pray. And at that same moment, we started to get news that people were flooding the hospital and that people were starting to flood our church. And um, I remember being just in, in just a moment of kind of panic, like, what should I do? And I remember thinking, I know you would want us to go to the church. He, I thought, if there's people flooding the church, someone needs to go there and try to, to figure out what was going on. Because in today's world of like social media, we, things were starting to go out on social media, and we knew that at some point we had to kind of get a handle on that. Um, so I'll never forget the drive to the church. I, I, my brother-in-law came and picked me up because he was like, you can't drive. So they drove me to the church, and, and when we got there, um, people were starting to kind of hear different things, that, they, that Lynn may have passed away, but we weren't exactly sure. And I, and I remember distinctively, the week before the accident, we had a staff meeting. It was probably the last staff meeting that you were in. You had been to a training on dealing with crisis. And literally, one of the last things that he said to us was, um, you know, if there's ever a crisis, one of the first things you need to do to keep people calm is you need to have them sit down and get them bottles of water. And as people were flooding the church, I remember, like, I have a distinct memory of jumping over our cafe and just grabbing water bottles and handing them to people because they were, they were literally panicking and just crying and sobbing because we didn't know what had happened, but we knew you were in a very bad way. And then, of course, later throughout the night, we, um, we did hear the news that Lynn had passed away and, and we needed to kind of share that news, which was very hard. And so it was like one of those moments, sometimes the shattering in your life can happen quickly in an instant, and other times maybe it's something that it, over the years, like the shattering just continues to happen. But You watched that, it in your life with your dad. Yeah, I did. 14 years. Yeah, my dad had Parkinson's disease, and so for 14 years he battled that. And if you've ever been related to someone who's battled different diseases, you know how that um, just can shatter. And, and, I, and I'll say this just on that point, that, you know, our stories are different. And one thing that I would just, you know, caution you on... Um, Many times we often feel like when we have a similar story mm -hmm. that we know exactly how the other person felt. If your dad passed away when you were a child and you're talking to someone else and they t say, well, I lost my dad when I was a kid, you say, I know exactly how you feel. I just, I'm going to use a timeout, all right? Mm -hmm. Don't ever say that. Because we never really know exactly how somebody feels. Because their dad is different than your dad. Maybe they had no relationship with their dad. Maybe their dad was a man of faith. Maybe he wasn't. So just be cautious when you say, I know exactly how you feel. I was divorced too. Your divorce is completely different than their divorce. Okay, all of our stories are different. The thing that's the same is the grace of God. That's the thing that's the same. So just, you know, every story is different. Because, you know, I wake up, my wife is gone. She watches her dad, you know, for 14 years. And what we often do, the last thing I'll say about that is we think about the person going through it. That's why I'm so glad that Deb is sharing what our church went through because if a, if a person's battling cancer, we focus on them, we pray for them. God, heal that cancer. But don't forget to pray for the one, the wife or the husband that walks alongside of them because they're going through a whole different part of that. So don't forget that person. Yeah, and one of the things I know you, you mentioned a little bit this morning, but for literally at least three weeks um, after the accident, Brian was in a medically induced coma. And so those first few days, honestly, we didn't, it was very possible that he was not going to make it. Um, they were pretty frank with your family. And um, we just, as a church, we prayed and thank you for everyone who prayed along with us. Um, but we really thought we might be having two funerals. And I distinctly remember um, going to see you for the first time. It was, it was two days after the accident and walking into your room and just seeing tubes everywhere. And um, it, was, it was horrible, but yet I also, um, the one thing that was encouraging was you were trying to rip some of the, yeah. the tubes out. So that like was encouraging because we're like, well, he's still fighting in there. Um, but I think one of the hardest things during that time for our church, and I know for your family, was that it was almost like every day people would say, did he wake up yet? Does he know what's going on? We felt like we had this big secret that we all knew 
that Lynn had died and that you had lost your leg, but you didn't know. And we almost, it almost, we almost felt guilty. Like, what's that moment going to be like when he wakes up and somebody has to tell him? And, and I remember there was a time where people thought, maybe he'll just wake up and he'll, have no, he'll know what has happened. And uh, I almost, every Sunday that would pass, it was at least two or three Sundays, I almost didn't want to see people. I had to greet people, but I knew they were going to ask me, does he know? Does he know what happened yet? And um, so I know you talked about it a little bit today, but just tell us what that was like to wake up yeah, and find I, out. What I started, they, they made a decision to let me wake up. Um, Lynn had already been buried, so all of that had happened. I had no memory, no knowledge of it, and so I started to come to, and then I would go back out, and then I would be just really clear for like a moment, and then right back out, heavily medicated. I was on a drug called Neurotin that they often give to amputees, veterans, who lose a limb and it really affects your nervous system it kind of subdues it I'll talk about it probably later you get this stuff called phantom pain but at this point I didn't even know that I had lost my leg I didn't know that my wife was gone as I shared this morning I kept asking people where's Lynn you know and then I'd go back out and they said just change the subject he'll go with you but when I finally after Rhonda like I said this morning she finally her sister said Brian Lynn is gone she's dead you were in a horrible accident you've lost Lynn and you've lost your leg. And I remember just, you know, reaching down over my left leg, not even knowing at that point that my leg was gone. And, and then just, you know, a thousand things flood your mind. It was, it was this shattering, you know, just instant. Like, I just like, what? And then at night, I would still wrestle. I, I would wake up. As I said, they were, I was pulling the feeding tube out. They thought I would lose my voice. They thought I was going to die from infection. I had these two things just taking infection out of my body. Uh, they thought respiratory, then I would stop breathing. It was just, it was just, it was on and on. And uh, as I would come to, I would just think, I, I remember just waking up thinking I was in a battle in this. Then they put 24-hour nurses on me because I had to be watched because I was ripping these tubes out to the point they would stop me. And I woke up one night and she says, Brian, what are you doing? I said, what are you doing? I'm in a battle. Hand me my sword. And I just was having these, you know, it's just, it was just a bizarre time in my life. And, uh, and then, of course, when I really began to just, like, become clear, I started thinking, how did this happen? Because at first, I didn't even know that it was. I mean, I knew we were in an accident. They told me we were hit. But I didn't know the young man. I didn't know what he had been doing. I didn't know he was driving drunk. Um, and so it was, uh, it was really hard, really hard when I first saw my boys. My, my oldest son had just gotten to South Carolina on vacation, just pulled in to Myrtle Beach when he got the call. My son, my youngest son, was coming home. He was less than a quarter of a mile from the accident itself and was being redirected by the police and didn't even know that it was his mom and dad that was in that accident. My middle son received the call and sat with my two sister-in-laws and as Deb said, they, were, they, they couldn't announce her death until she was pronounced dead by the coroner and so they said, we can't find her. So my family was very confused. And they're saying, what do you mean they can't find her? They were on the motorcycle together. So it was a really horrific night. Mm -hmm. I remember around that time um, when you were starting to wake up, we knew for about two days that they were telling you. And one of the horrible things was because of all the medicine he was on, they had to tell him multiple times. Mm -hmm. And I remember distinctively, you know, um, just I said a lot of times that during that time, it was like prayer was like breathing. You know, we all know we should pray and we pray. But... When you're in a season like that, like literally it was almost like every breath you took was just like a prayer. And I remember I had just a few hours one Friday, and it was a Friday, it's typically our day off. Um, and I was at home and I was, for whatever reason, I was cleaning up my garage. I think it was because I needed to just like organize something because I felt like life was just completely disorganized. I remember getting a text message, sorry, that they were trying to tell you again. And I remember like literally distinctively crying. I was just crying <laughs> hysterically in my, in my garage because I knew at that moment you were being told again. And so um, just never under, don't underestimate the prayers that you pray for people because you never know what God's going to, how he's going to use them. There, there was actually a moment when she said that, that our church was praying without ceasing. I many times and, and probably Central Assembly played, prayed for me. Uh, there were 12,000 churches. The news spread across the Assemblies of God. Uh, I remember having this thought. One night I was laying in the hospital. I was getting more conscious and awake. 
Uh, you saw Steve Pennington, who's the area director for East Africa. Uh, he was the best man in my wedding. He, was, he, he flew home from Africa and was like a dad to my boys for two weeks, mm -hmm. yeah. who laughed with them when they needed to laugh, who cried with them when they needed to cry. He prayed over them. And there were hundreds and hundreds of African pastors praying for me. And I had this thought for a moment that said, there was probably a season in my life where 24 hours a day I was being prayed for. And I remember that. And people will come and say to me, Brian, you know, I know you hear this all the time, but I just want you to know I'm praying for you. And I said, I thank God I hear that all the time. Prayer is a gift. I would not be where I am today without the power of prayer. And so I thank God that those prayers were just like, it was like breathing for our church. And it was a powerful time. You talked uh, just a little bit about your boys. I know that was one of the, the most difficult things right after the accident because we felt like, I mean, I had known Ben, Bryce, and Brett since they were little, little boys. Um, and I remember just thinking right after the accident that they had lost their mom in an instant, and it was very possible that they were going to lose their dad. And for a number of weeks, they did lose their dad, technically, because they couldn't talk with you, they couldn't share anything with you. Just give us for a really quick just how you reflect back on how they handled that time and how they're doing now. Because I think a lot of times people want to know, well, what happened to your boys? How are they doing today? Well, they're, they're doing well, I will say that. But initially, out of the gate, my oldest son became very angry. He was very angry to the young man that did this. Uh, some of my uncles and my family uh, could not believe. We're going to talk about forgiveness. My uncle almost cursed at me. Now, think about that. I've almost lost my life, and, you know, he's not a Christian, okay? He uh, calls me the Billy Graham of Berks County because our church has grown. <laughs> That's a compliment, I think. And he said, how in the world can you forgive that guy, Brian? I said, I don't know, Uncle Ben. How in the world could God forgive a guy like me? I drank and drove. I drove home drunk many nights. I used marijuana. I snorted speed. I could have, I could have done, I could have done, if it weren't for the grace of God, I could have done to other families what was done to me. See, when we refuse to forgive, we refuse to realize who we really are. We are sinners saved by grace. We always compare ourselves to another person and say, well, I'm better than they are. I'm not Charles Manson. I'm not Adolf Hitler. You know, think about it. So you, who's the, when I witness to people, I'll say, who, if anybody's going to heaven, who do you think is going to go to heaven? People will say Billy Graham and Mother Teresa. It's funny. Ahead of the Pope, they say Mother Teresa. If hell is real and, and they're not going, who's going to hell? Adolf Hitler, they start naming all these, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer. And I said, okay, well, where are you then in that mix? And they say, well, somewhere here, maybe hopefully closer to Billy. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, the thing is, all of us are short of the grace of God. No one, all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All right? So forgiveness means you need to recognize that we are sinners saved by grace. If we can't forgive, Matthew 18 says, if we refuse to forgive, then guess what? God's not going to forgive us. And that was one of the first things that came to my mind. But my oldest son was very angry. And I told my son, I said, I said Ben, I said, think about our stories. Are we perfect? I said, we can't, we can't, we have to forgive him. We have to. God's forgiven us. And tears started rolling down my son's face. My middle son was, you know, he got the news and he was very troubled by it, and yet Bryce is doing well. He married. He now lives in Cleveland. My youngest son I felt the most heartsick for. He's a senior in high school, and his mom is gone. His dad doesn't have his leg, and I was just, for a year, it was just like, whoa. I was, you know, when you walk with two legs, and now you've got one, that's a whole new ballgame. And my heart broke for my son. But now he's at Messiah. He's on the dean's list. He's running track. He's gotten to the next chapter of his life. The thing is, you just got to move on. My boys questioned God. I questioned God. I thought, God, one more red light. If she just stayed in the ladies' room a little longer, if we just one more sip of coffee, if I'd have caught this guy on the straight stretch. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says our days are numbered. The Bible says in Psalm 116.15, the Lord cares deeply when his loved ones die. Our, our moments, the Lord reminded me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me 
that my days are numbered. How fleeting my life is. James says life is but a vapor. We wake up, and that's why when you walk out, you fuss and fight, you know, and I was, when my wife and I, and my wife and I didn't, we had a great marriage, but it wasn't perfect. But when we'd have a little fuss, Lynn would get quiet for like maybe a day. I'd say, is something wrong? Nope. <laughs> Honey, is something wrong? No, nothing's wrong. Okay, I said, well, I feel like something is. So when you want to tell me, I can't really apologize till I know. Don't hold grudges. We need to forgive. Don't let the sun go down in your wrath. Life is short. I am so grateful that that day we had been talking about life and our grandkids. I'm so glad that that was, we don't want to have regret. And so my boys are doing well. They, they really are. But they're on the journey. And I'll tell you, grief hits you like a wave. You know, we often say in church, here's something about grief, Okay. Out at our table, we have a series called The New Normal. And here's what I say. My life will never be what it used to be. I remember when I lost my left eye. This sideburn will always be a little shorter than this one. All right? None of can be the same. My life isn't the same without my leg. 52, I get up and go to the restroom at 3 in the morning. It's tough on two legs. Try it with one. You know what I mean? It's just, it's never going to be the same, but it's, it's never going to be the way it was, but God gives us new thoughts and a new heart and new memories and new blessings, okay? And so it, in that series, we talk about it because gr grief, how many have lost a loved one? Okay, most every hand up. Grief hits you like a wave. And, and Deb, I'll never forget, she had shared a devotion with me that she read. It's called Pre-Grief. Because people say, well, and I didn't understand this as a pastor. I can tell you right now, I'm a better pastor than I was three years ago. I didn't understand grief. I didn't have a lot of loss in my family. And I would try to be comforting. I'd done hundreds of funerals. But she said, do a pre-grief. So now I'm going down. They said, well, the first year of, your, of the loss of a loved one's the hardest. Your first Thanksgiving, your first Christmas. Well, guess what I've learned? There's a lot of firsts in life. The first words my little grandson speaks. His first birthday. I'm going there to be happy and joyful with my son, but my heart is broken because I know his mom, my wife, would love to see this. There's a lot of firsts. And Deb had said, I read this devotion where it said, just go and pre-grieve. If I'm going to go down on that first year birthday, just think about Lynn. Have a moment and say, God, so that you're not, you know, bringing heartache to every joyous time. So it's not like we say, oh, man, on the mountain. I'm on the mountaintop, praise God, or I'm down in the valley. How many know that the valley is a good place? That's where the rain goes. That's where the crops grow. All right? I don't think it's mountaintop. I know the Bible speaks of mountaintop and valleys. But, you know, I think it's like railroad tracks. The good and bad of life run together. You can be on the mountaintop and forget God. It can be sunny in 70 and you can forget who blessed you. And you can be in the darkest part of your life and you can say, God, I'm trusting you. So those are some things I've learned about grief and it's available out at the table, the new normal. Mm -hmm. I know one of the things, uh, just thinking about the whole idea of grief, and just asking you to just take a second um, and reflect back on just when you did wake up and you reflect back on how the church responded. Because I can tell you immediately after the accident, we didn't know what caused the accident. It wasn't known immediately that it was a drunk driver that had caused it. There was a little bit of suspicion here and there, but... Um, we waited actually, it was about a week and a half after the accident to have Lynn's services, to have her funeral, because we were hoping in that time that, that you would wake up. Um, so they tried to delay it as much as we thought that we could. But we, the decision was made that we needed to have her services. And uh, I remember the evening before uh, the services, that was going to be a Wednesday night, Tuesday evening, we got a phone call. Um, and I, the communication team... Um, works is on my team so we were kind of handling the media and just everything surrounding um, the accident and we got a phone call that news was going to break the next morning that it was a drunk driver and um, that was really difficult because we knew the church was going to react to that especially on the eve of Lynn's funeral and so balancing the grief that they were feeling the concern that you still might not make it and now the thought of, well, this could, have, this could have been prevented. And so as a team, as a staff, our executive pastor, myself, our communications director, I remember having that initial conversation of, and how do we respond to this? And um, I know that now, looking back, you, when we sat down to actually, we actually sat down 
and wrote a forgiveness statement because they wanted to know what was GT Church going to say in the face of this. Um, your pastor's wife, who was a pastor herself, was killed, and it was very possible that the lead pastor was going to, to die as well from the actions of a person. And so the media and the community and everyone was looking to us to say, is your faith real? You say all these things, but when this happens, how are you going to respond? And so um, there was a lot of conversations. And I can tell you honestly, even for myself, it wasn't easy in that moment to sit down and write a forgiveness statement because at that time, we were, we were upset, we were angry. Um, but yeah, so maybe just yeah, Forgiveness, um, you know, it was, it was amazing to me when I did wake up and find out what our staff had to do. It was their part of the journey. I mean, shortly after Lynn's funeral, so they just bury my wife. I'm not even conscious that it happened. A few days later, Todd, who's working with your kids tonight, was launching Vacation Bible School. Over a thousand kids would come to our campus. And there was a big debate. Should we have it? Shouldn't we have it? How can we have this when we've just buried? And, and he may die. We may have a funeral after VBS. And I was greatly moved to know that people like Deb and Todd and so many, so many of our staff said, we know Brian. We know he'd want to do the mission. And Todd said to, the, to the, his staff, he said, what do we tell kids that you worship Jesus until something bad happens? And then when something bad happens, we've got to stop. It was hard for them to do that. But I thank God. I'll, I'll tell you one story where a lady, she had gotten saved. She came to Christ two weeks before the accident. Comes into GT Church, the altar call's given. She responds to God, she's born again. She's growing, she's starting to grow, and then the accident happens. And she told the lady who brought her to the church, she said, you know what, I'm done. If God lets that happen to your pastor and his wife, I don't, I don't want to serve a God like that. Okay, so think about that. That's what she said. And I think there's a lot of people who felt that who might not have said it. Yeah. Like if we're being honest and we're being real. <laughs> right. She was being childlike. <laughs> I'm just saying what I believe. So here's the deal. So they had VBS. Now think if they wouldn't have. Think if they just said, well, we can't do VBS. It's just we got to care. Because they were balancing my boys and how they felt. Oh, the church just goes on and does their own thing. But here's the deal. My son, a week I think after I woke up, was on a global trip to South America. My youngest son, too, went to VBS. This woman who walked out of the church decided to bring her granddaughter back to GT. So she comes back, wanted nothing to do with God, but she brought her granddaughter. I don't understand that fully. But she comes, and the lady who um, brought her said, um, you see the young man up there all the way to the left on the stage who's singing? She said, do you know who that is? That's Pastor Brian's son. He was up at VBS leading other children into the presence of God. And this woman, here's what she said. I want to tell you, people are watching us closely. She said, there's nothing wrong with God. There's something wrong with me. She now recommitted her life back to God. She's growing and changing. And so I want you to think about it. I am so blessed by our staff and what they did. People are watching you closely. I'll never forget... I'm a new Christian. I'm riding on the bus with the Chicago White Sox. We're on a six-hour bus ride. Horrible. We're riding on the bus. And I don't know, I listen to my Christian music because I, I would always sit on the bus by myself. They're back there drinking, playing cards, partying, and I'm up in the front, you know, 20 years old, empty seat. And then I began to realize that my empty seat, when grandma died or the girlfriend broke up, guess who sat in my seat? People watch. So one night, we're traveling six hours down the road. We're going up to Erie, Pennsylvania, and I sneeze. I didn't get to cover my mouth. I just, you know, all guys. And the guy in the seat in front of me goes, nice Christian sneeze. You didn't even cover your mouth. And my gut reaction as a new Christian was, turn yours here, I'm going to smack yours. <laughs> what are you talking about, Christian sneeze? And then the Lord convicted me and said, they're watching you closely. I had two roommates. Every town we went into, every town, we'd go to eat, they'd start talking to the waitress, and the waitress would come back to our room that night. He'd tell her that he loved her. And I'll never forget those moments where you just have to, people are watching early. You say, well, Brian, your story, the media, oh, no, listen, they're watching all of our lives. 
your story is very powerful. And so I was really blown away about how our staff responded. They made a lot of hard decisions, but very grateful for it. So I'm sure everyone who's sitting here tonight is probably thinking, well, tell us a little bit more about Sean, or tell us about what happened when you woke up and realized that one person's decision was now going to affect your life forever. So can you just talk yeah, to us Yeah, right out of the gate, I'm laying in my bed, I'll never forget it, and I realized we were in this accident. And then when it became news that he was drunk, uh, I remember, as I said, I was far from God. I drank, I partied, I had the full beard as a young kid, so I was the guy buying the beer. So I, right out of the gate was I realized that he's no different than I was. I realized, and I didn't feel this pressure as a pastor. You know, I don't like being called. I, pastor, you know, Pastor Brian, I can live with. You call me Reverend, I won't even look at you. <laughs> Reverend. I was somewhere one night, they were introducing some bishop, the most holy Reverend Bishop of the Art. I felt bad for him. I thought, man, with a title like that, that's a lot of pressure. Just call me what my mom called me, Brian. But I didn't feel this pressure that I'm a pastor, so I just realized that every Christian is called to forgive. And so I made the decision that night laying in my bed. I said, God, I don't know who this guy is. I've never, I never saw his face. I'd never seen him yet. And I said, whoever this young man is, God, I, I forgive him. And then I, as, I, as it unfolded, I knew the church wrote a forgiveness statement, and the church forgave him. My boys eventually forgave him. And so that was our first reaction out of the gate. It was a struggle. It was hard. It's never easy. I'll say this. This is kind of the bottom line, and I'll probably repeat it. Here's, just think about this. It's one thing to hear forgiveness. Oh, you can be forgiven. It's something else to really understand being forgiven. It's life-changing to experience forgiveness. I would imagine everybody in this room has been forgiven by Jesus Christ. I don't know that. But it's awesome to be forgiven, isn't it? But let me tell you this. It's hard sometimes to give it. It's great to receive it, but it's hard to give it. And so it wasn't easy, but we did forgive Sean. Well, I can tell you, I almost instantly, probably the day or so after the accident, or two days maybe when my mind, and I was just replaying things in my mind, I knew you were to forgive him. Like, I just did. I just was like... There was no question in my mind because I knew you and I, was, and I knew as hard as that was that you were going to forgive him. And so in those moments when it was even a struggle as a staff, you know, you said a lot of times we'd be like, okay, what would Brian think? What would he do in this situation? We just knew immediately that, that you were going to forgive him. And that just, um, just kind of freed us too to say, you know what, we need, to, we, need, we need to do the same thing. And, you know, the other thing to think about is to think about the family of the other person. One of the distinct memories I have was being where I was actually setting up flowers for Lynn's funeral. It was late one night, the night before the funeral, and I was setting up flowers, and somebody walked into the door, and it was the uncle of the young man who had hit you. And he came and just said, it makes me cry when I think that he apologized to us for the actions of his nephew and just said, you know, my nephew's been bound for years, and I he said, I don't, I, I don't even feel like I can show my face in this building because I'm related to him, but I need you to know how sorry I am, and I need you to know how sorry our family is for everything that has happened. And obviously, you know, we embraced him and chatted with him and talked with him, but, you know, it, when something like that happens, it affects everybody. It's not just the person in the accident, but it's the whole family. And so that being able to share that forgiveness with him was just um, a really amazing thing. And, and so um, I want to just talk about December 17th of 2015, because that was, obviously June 7th was a very, um, just an unbelievable day in a lot of ways, but December uh, 17th was another day. And just tell us a little bit about that, and then I'm going to read something. So I, um, I'm out of the hospital. I get home the first day, as I mentioned, my 28th year wedding anniversary on August 8th. So now I'm living at home. My kids are, you know, growing up. My youngest is a senior in high school. I'm trying to hobble around the house. I'm, I'm having to crawl. I had to crawl up the stairs because I didn't have that prosthetic leg. And so I would just, you know, lift myself up every step, every step, because we had two floors. I, you know, we grieve a lot of things in life. We grieve death. I was grieving the loss of my leg. I, I grieve that I'm not the same man I used to be. 
It's just so much change. And he was going to fight it. It was going to be the largest DUI case. In fact, in Berks County, it's called DUI Thursday. And for about three and a half hours, a room about as full as this sanctuary tonight, people come in, professors, attorneys, vice presidents come in, and they're charged with DUI. You know, the Bible says that we need to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And they moved my case to the end because it was all the media and they were having this big thing because what this young man had done, he was going to fight it. They were going to go for him uh, over 22 years in prison because you know what he had done? He had hit another family drunk. He could have gotten three years. He got three days. Someone said, who we need to pray for are not judges and attorneys. We need to pray for the politicians to get this figured out. And so they moved my thing to the end. And what he had done now was he knew that if he fought this, he could get 20 years in prison. So he fell on the mercy of the court. He said, I did do it. And of course, they knew he did it because he was so drunk, came across the road, pushed us up into the yard of the lady that lived there. And so now I'm learning to use my prosthetic leg. God had it ahead. I wasn't supposed to get it till the next Christmas, and I'm learning to use this leg. So I'm working on trying to learn to use this leg and hobble along, and now I have to leave that week that I have one week to learn how to use it. And now December 17th, i got to go in the courtroom. And um, so we walked into that courtroom, and Deb's going to read, I think, a little piece of it, but I'll never forget walking into that courtroom and for the first time laying my eyes on the young man that did this to me and did it to my wife. And I remember that too. I was there that day and the courtroom was small. It was a small courtroom, yeah. but it was packed. Like he said, the media was there. And, and um, I'll, I'll never forget thinking, how is this going to be? How is Brian, Brian going to look this kid in the eyes? Like, how, and is he going to talk to him? And, and when they brought everybody in, they actually literally sat your family like next to his family. Like, I was so if you about can imagine eight inches away in, from his mother. Yeah, like in the pew and sitting them all next to each other and thinking, this is like a scene from a movie. Like, I, I, how is this going to play out? And, and I want to read you um, the actual transcript. And before she reads it to set it up, what they, they got to speak for their son to say he was a nice guy, he didn't mean to do this, and then we got to give the victims talk. So my oldest son spoke, my two sister-in-laws spoke, and then I got to speak. And so she's going to read, only, this is from the court, word for word, what I had spoken. Yeah, I'm not going to read all of it, but I'll read a portion of it. Um, first of all, you asked Judge Abacabella if you could look at Sean. Right, because what you do, you'd face the judge. So I'd be looking this way to the judge, and he'd be to my right. And I just ask, instead of looking at you, may I look right into his eye and say what I'm going to say? And he allowed me to. He said, Sean, what I'm about to say to you today has nothing to do with anger or bitterness. Because as a Christian man, I try to be forgiving and I try to do better, not bitter. So I don't say it out of anger. I don't say it out of hostility. But I do just want to share briefly two very important things with you. The first thing I want to share with you is the enormity of hurt in people's lives. We see it in our world. Our world has a lot of difficulty in it. We're not the only family that's experienced it. Many families have experienced difficulty, but the enormity of the pain that you have caused us will last a lifetime. I've had 19 surgeries, I've gone, which have been very painful in my life. It's been very painful to lose your wife and to lose, lose your leg in one moment. And, I, and I'm clear that it's evident why it happened. Because you hit my wife and the hurt that I feel, being married to this woman for 28 years, doing the very best we could. We weren't perfect, but we were good parents. We loved God. We helped the community, and we tried to help the world. That ended for her on June 7th. And that's tough, and I've cried many tears because of it. And I want you to know that the, sec the second that I woke up, I asked God this question. I said, God, why didn't we stop at a red light? I said, why didn't, we why didn't I use the men's room? How could we meet you, Sean, on that tough turn when you were leaving that place being so drunk? And God didn't give me an answer, Sean. And I know he may never give me that answer. There's no answer sometimes for those difficult things in life. 
And I'm sure you've had a lot of questions about that day too. I'll never have the answer to that, but I know that the pain and the heartache that I'm going to live with forever, I'm going to live the rest of my life without my wife. I'm going to live the rest of my life without my leg. And you've heard Lynn's sisters, you've heard their tears, and I don't want to stand before you or anyone here and cry, but I want you to know that the pain you did cause my family, and I think you get a little sense of that. But the second thing I want to tell you, Sean, is, is about the enormity of choice. There's choices in life that we make and other choices that make us. The choice you made on June 7th, and probably a few days in addition to that, the way you chose to drink the way you did, to be addicted to alcohol, or whatever, or whatever you were on that day, affected us. Because today, or actually on June 7th, I was given a life sentence. No matter how many days you spend in jail, I was given a life sentence. And then you made a choice that day to get behind a car and drive on Grange Road, which is a tough road, and unfortunately, we met on that turn. You never saw us. You made that choice. We all make choices, but I want you to know the choices that you make have great impact because your family was hurt that day and not just my family. I know your, your kids must be heartbroken and your, your family's heartbroken about this situation, but there's great enormity to our choices. In fact, many theologians say this. They say, Sean, that we make our choices and our choices make us. I didn't make the choice to, to be on... Um, I did make a choice to be on the motorcycle that day, but what happened to me on June 7th, I didn't make that choice. But I do make the choice today, and my family makes the choice today, Sean, to forgive you. And I just pray that one day that you'll be able to forgive yourself, and then I'll let you tell us. And I, I shared with him, I thought, I'm in the courtroom, I'm giving my talk, and I gave him the gospel. And I said, use the power of choice to let Jesus Christ forgive you. I said, I want you to receive what I've received. And I told the media, it didn't matter if he got four seconds in prison, four weeks, or four years, or 40. It wasn't going to change my life. I had a life sentence. See, when we refuse to forgive, what we really do is let the person who hurt us continue to hurt us. When we refuse to give them grace and say, I forgive you. Now, here's a mistake we make with forgiveness. Forgiving doesn't mean forgetting. Sometimes we can't forgive ourselves. You've had an abortion, you can't forgive yourself. You were divorced, you can't forgive yourself. You did something wrong, you can't forgive yourself. That's what the grace of God is all about. Okay, God does forgive us. But when we refuse to forgive someone, then what we allow them to do is to continue to punish us. I've talked to people now that I never dreamed I would talk to. I talked to um, a young lady, she called me, she's an aunt. Another family member took their little niece, a family member, raped that little girl and murdered her. He has life in prison. And she says, I, I don't feel like I've forgiven him. But what she described to me is that she really had forgiven him. But you're not going to forget that. Only God can forgive and forget. We're human beings. Something would have to happen to our brain to forget. Every day I put this leg on, I don't forget but I have forgiven. And that's what we need to do. When I hear people holding on to unforgiveness and saying, I, you know, I've done funerals where a mother hasn't talked to a son in 15 years. One of the first funerals I did was for a pagan motorcycle gang leader. Pagan motorcycle gang. He had murdered people. He committed felonies to be the chapter leader. His mother hadn't talked to him in 15 years. And when she went to the funeral, she's lifting his body out of the casket trying to talk to him because she hadn't talked to him in 15 years. Don't wait for the funeral to forgive. I remember there was a, I remember you telling a story distinctively about when you were still in the hospital. I think it was actually, yeah. you were going in for one of your last surgeries, yeah. the 18th or 19th surgery, and there was a nurse that was wheeling you. Yeah. And maybe you want to tell that. I was laying in the gurney and having my 19th surgery. I'm awake for this one. In fact, I crawled up on the operating table. You know, usually they knock you out before you get in. But they were afraid I was going to lose my voice. So I'd go in. They'd say, hey, Brian. Hey, hey. When you're known by name in the operating room, you've had too many. And they would often say, hey, we're good to have you back. We're, gonna, we're praying for you. We're not just working on you. I'd say, yeah, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. 
And I'd lay up there in that cold operating table, and they'd say, okay, Brian, we're going to put you on now. And boom. So I'm laying this gurney, and I know I'm a Christian, I know I'm a pastor, but I wasn't feeling like any of that that day. And I was talking to people, and of course, I was kind, and I was, you know, encouraging to nurses and whatever, and witnessing to so many people. And this lady came up, but I didn't feel like talking that day, and she came up, she goes, she said, uh, Brian, can I ask you a question? And I said, yeah, sure. And she goes, I don't know how you do this. She goes, I don't know how you're this kind and so nice when all this has happened to you. And she wasn't a nurse. She was just kind of standing by me until they took me in. And I just sensed this lady a lot of pain and a lot of heartache. And I, I said, uh, she goes, how do you do it? How do you do this? And I said, there's one word for it. And she says, one word? I said, yeah, one word. It's called grace. Unmerited favor. I could never do it for somebody else if God wouldn't have done it for me. I said, what's your problem? I said, I sense your anger in you. Yeah, I'm pretty straight. <laughs> pretty like, and she said, well, I'll tell you my problem. She says, I hate my sister. I said, you hate your sister. I said, why do you hate your sister? Because eight months ago, she took her life, left us with her three kids, didn't tell us why. She goes, I hate her. And I said, well, here's what I would say to you. I say, I'm not saying that if God changes your life, you're ever going to understand why your sister did that. It's horrible. I don't know why she did it. I don't know that I'm going to have the answer ever of why this happened in my life. But I said, when you accept God's grace, it's going to change you. And you're going to know yourself better. You have to be forgiven or you'll never begin to consider what your sister did. I no sooner said that, I was going to pray with her, and they came and rolled me into the operating room. And I don't know where she's at today, but I know this, that grace is the only thing that can change our lives. Mm -hmm. right. Everybody, when you came in today, got a tissue. And, and Deb will just share this. We're getting ready to close, actually. Um, I, in the crisis thing, you know, we were talking about just setting people down. Why don't you tell the story about the tissues and why everyone yeah. got one tonight? Well, I know um, in churches a lot of times, right, you have tissue boxes. You probably have some here, right there. There they are. And some of you, Pastor Kurt told me, well, in fact, he came in, and they handed him a tissue. He said, no, no, I'm good. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you right now, I'm not, I'm not a crier. I, I, you know, Little House in the Prairie, sometimes I would, you know, shed a tear. I don't know why Little House in the Prairie. I don't know. But I didn't cry much. But now the tears roll. But some of you came in and said, no, no, I'm good. I got my own, but um, yeah. Earlier today, um, he, when Brian was talking, he shared the verse that talks about So everybody about hold it up. Hold up your tissue. I want to know you got it. All right. There you go. Um, he talked about how there was a verse that was really special to our church. Actually, um, it was a verse that uh, talks about how the Lord is close to the broken hearted. He comforts those who are crushed in spirit. I remember the night of the accident, uh, picking that verse while well, I was with myself and another staff member because we had had something up on our church sign that was like promoting an event that was coming up and I remember standing in the middle of the atrium and weird things how weird things come to you but I remember thinking we need to change the sign because we can't have that on the sign when people are driving by and knowing that pastor's wife Lynn was just killed in a car accident and Brian what are what do we put up on the church sign everything seemed a little futile to put anything on the sign and I remember looking at somebody on staff and saying we need to put a verse up and the verse that came to us is that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he comforts those who are crushed in spirit and I can tell you we were crushed we were brokenhearted there were no words and uh, so that verse kind of became like our anthem for for weeks we put that up on our on our sign and and because there was no other, there was no words to say how we felt except that we were crushed. And so when we do, when we break things, it's extra, extra in a way meaningful for us because that's how we felt. And I don't know where you've come from. I don't know your background, but I know that there's all, we probably all have had times in our lives where we feel crushed and we feel broken. And uh, one of the other distinctive memories I had um, during the days following the accident was, like I said, most churches, we had boxes of tissues. And we had tissues out in our atrium. And the tears just flowed and flowed and flowed for days. So much so that we literally bought our community out of tissue boxes. 
<laughs> I remember sending people to Giant. Our church is near Giant. We bought them out. We sent them to Target. We bought them out. We sent them to Walmart. We bought Walmart out. And you know, so if the price of cleanups went up, <laughs> uh, we're sorry. It's our fault. Supply and demand. Scoured, we scoured Berks County for tissues. I remember, um, she's now my assistant creative director. I remember her saying, Lisa, go anywhere you can in this county and find tissues. And you know, in the Bible, it talks about like lamenting. I had never experienced what it was to have corporate lamenting until the week of June 7th. And um, tissues just were were everywhere. And then it was like, at that point, we didn't care. It was like, just use your sleeve. It doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah. We can't find tissues. And so um, I used to look at tissues one way, but now I look at them very differently because um, there's preciousness in tears, you know? And it was during that time that God shared a verse with us, and I know you're going to share it right now. Yeah. Uh, why don't we do this? Why don't we stand? You've been sitting for a while. The team's going to come. Um, the altar team is here. If you want to pray... You just want to worship. You, you know, you can do that right where you're sitting or you can come to the front. Um, we talked a lot about glass this week. In fact, in this new normal series that's out there, uh, we broke something on the stage every week. We broke yardsticks when people feel like they don't measure up. We had our stage line, because I guarantee you there's people sitting here tonight, standing here now. They've had brokenness. I had a gal standing, you know, Deb shared about her dad 14 years fighting disease. Lady to my left, her sister was shot to death in domestic violence. And then the man shot himself. And she shattered her globe. And God takes the brokenness of our life and he's the only one that can fix it and make it beautiful and, and change it. All right? And so I want you tonight, as you take this tissue, I want you to think about it. For some of you, you might just want to bring this tissue up to the altar and just lay it across here. And say, God, I've cried every tear I can cry over this. I'm just going to have to trust you with it now. And so you just come up here and you just bring this tissue and you just lay it down. You know, the Bible talks a lot about memorials. I think in America we don't do enough of that. There's so many where that God would say to the Israelites, take stones and just lay stones. Don't, don't engrave them. Don't make idols out of them. Just 12 stones out of the Jordan River. Samuel's walking through during the days of David and he picks up this stone. It's the rock of Ebenezer. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. And so, some of you may want to come tonight as Adam leads us in worship. And just when you feel led to come, and all you may want to do is just drop this on the altar. Just say, God, I'm giving you that. I've cried a lot of tears, but I'm giving it to you. I'm forgiving this person. I'm letting it go. It's going to you. Maybe you want to take it with you. I don't know. Just as a memorial. You want to lay it on your desk this week. You want to put it in your Bible. Let it be a memorial. Because the Bible says this. This is another verse that Deb referenced. Psalm 56, verse 8. We've had a lot of glass here in Central today. We've got this bottle. The Bible says, You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. Think about that. I think of the tears that were weeped and cried and lamented over me. That's just one person. Think of the tears you've cried. And I know there's joyful tears. You can be so happy you're crying, you know. But there's sad tears. But the Bible says God has recorded and tracked every one of them. Every tear. So I want you to bring that tissue that you have tonight. And as we worship, I want you just to think about it. What unfinished business do you have? Remember tonight, Jesus finished it. He said, it is finished. So let's not walk out with it. He finished it. He paid the price. Let's drop it. If you need to talk with somebody, pray with somebody, the team is here. If you just want to talk to God, in fact, maybe what you'll do is find a place to pray on the sides if you want to just... You and God, if you want to pray here in the middle after you drop your Kleenex, just write in here. Then they'll know they want prayer. And let's, let's just bring our tissues. Let's drop them. Let's give them to God, whatever they are. Maybe it's someone you're praying for their tears. It's not even your tears. It's their tears, and you're going to pray for them. Tonight, if we could just, uh, let's just slip up our hands to God.
What is this a sign of in life? Surrender. Stick up your hands. Surrender. It's part of the journey. I want to pray over you tonight. Father God, I thank you for Central Church. I thank you, God, for this fellowship. Thank you for what you're doing in the midst of this people. God, you see every one of these tissues at this altar. God, you know what they represent. You know the tears that they represent. The tears that you have recorded. The tears that are in your bottle. Every tear. Do we understand it all? No. Do we get it? No. Do we struggle with it? Yes. Do we question why? Yes. Do we love you? Yes, we do. I pray your blessing over this church. I pray your favor over all these Kleenex, Lord, what they represent, these tissues. It represent broken hearts, broken dreams, broken bodies. But God, they represent your grace. They represent our obedience. They say, God, we're going to honor you. We don't care how hard it is. Lord, when we think about the fact of our unfinished business, the things that just feel tangled, the things that we just don't have answers to, God, we think of you on Calvary. We think of you with your arms stretched, the nails through your hands and feet, the crown of thorns around your brow. You hung there for us. You said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus, we love you. I pray your divine blessing over this church, over Pastor Kurt, the staff, the team, the key leaders, every person in this church. We pray over this community, God. We pray over Houston, Lord, each part of this city. We pray tomorrow night for these first responders, a key part of this community. We pray for their salvation. We pray for their open hearts. We pray that seeds would be planted. I pray that in the weeks to come, that the healthiness of this church will spread to this community. God, we need revival in America. Southwest Pennsylvania, this county, God, has more people not going to church than are going. We're not defined by our success and the people who are coming, but those who aren't. We pray over this region, God. We pray your blessing over our life, Lord. We thank you for your grace, your love. We pray your help, God, upon us in every way. Thank you, God, that you delight over every detail of our lives. Help us with every step. Help us in every part of our life. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to check us out on the web at centralconnect.org.